You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual You've heard me cite, I love this quote, this Maya Angelou quote, you know it, when someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time. It's really relevant, that particular Maya Angelou quote, when it comes to sex and relationship advice. When someone shows you they're violent or abusive or that they can't be trusted with you alone in a room, naked and hard, believe them the first time they show you that. But earlier this week, I wondered, you know, sometimes people tell us who they are. They show us who they are. They make it really clear to us without realizing it themselves, without knowing who they are. Take, for instance, Paul Gazelka. He is the majority leader of the Minnesota State Senate, which I didn't realize was controlled by Republicans. Hopefully the coming 2020 blue wave will take care of that. It's a one-seat deal. The Republicans only have that chamber by one seat. Let's fix that in November of 2020, along with everything else we have to fix. Anyway, Gazelka, Senator Gazelka, is an anti-LGBT bigot, anti-gay bigot. He put one of his own children through conversion therapy. It didn't work. It never works. And Gina Gazelka has publicly condemned their father for his bigotry. Senator Gazelka, you know the score. He opposes gay marriage, gay people becoming parents. He supports religious liberty laws that would allow people to discriminate against LGBT people and single parents and cohabitating straight people and women who use birth control and non-Christians, so long as the bigot remembered to cross themselves and cite their sincerely held religious beliefs before discriminating against someone. Gazelka has been doing his anti-gay thing as a member of the Minnesota State Legislature since 2005, three terms in the Senate now. And last week, the news site Minnesota Reformer reported on an interview Gazelka did with Andrew Womack, a right-wing Christian activist slash nut, a man who claims to have raised his own son from the dead. And the gays came up because, of course, we did. Because, like Jesus said, wherever two or more of you are gathered in my name, you're probably going to start talking about all that hot, hot gay sex you aren't interested in having. There's science out there. Science. Actual science that shows homophobic men are aroused by homosexual pornography, which is why we keep catching homophobes, public homophobes, with rent boys in their mouths. Well, I think Gazelka might have told us who he might be during this interview. And he's exactly, or he may be, exactly who the science possibly says he is. Let's take a listen. I'm elbow deep uh, trying to connect to the gay community and all the different groups of people. I look at Jesus' life, and he was attractive to the sinner. The sinner loved to be around Jesus. And so I had to ask myself that. Mm. Are the people I'm around, are they attracted to me? You know, and sometimes uh, I, I plant a seed that I know produces fruit down the roads. But it comes from a relationship that's that's oozing with the love of Christ and the truth of his word. Elbow deep. If you want to connect with the gay community, that's how it's done. Elbow deep. That's how we like it. He also hopes gay men are attracted to him. He wants to plant a seed. And what is it you said that you were oozing with, Senator? The love of Christ? We call it pre-cum over at our place. But you can have your very own euphemism if it makes you feel better. That's what we call a whole lot of tells. When I hear a homophobe talking like that, I think, yeah, there could be a rent boy in this dude's future. Senator Gazelka, when you are ready, 
I'm here for you, 206-302-2064. When you need advice, when you need to walk back your entire adult life, give me a call. Finally, a darker note. We also found out who Rodney Dean Luffman was last week, too. Pastor Rodney Dean Luffman. Now facing 80 charges of indecent liberties, 35 charges of sexual offenses. His victims, according to authorities, range in age from four years old to 16 years old. Luffman is 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 the pastor of Open Arms Outreach Ministries. Still, as of this taping, the pastor. Hemant Mata, the friendly atheist, reports Luffman sent out a string of cryptic messages on his Facebook page shortly before his arrest, asking his parishioners to pray for him. And perhaps more importantly, not to believe anything they might hear about him on the news. A quick Google search reveals Luffman was just one of more than a dozen preachers, priests, and youth pastors that were arrested or sentenced for sex crimes last week, most of them committed against children. But remember, gang, it's Drag Queen Story Hour that poses a danger to kids. Not the man up there on the altar, the man up there in the Minnesota State Legislature who claims to speak for God and would very much like you to drop your small children off at Bible study. All right, brief programming note, the acclaimed Showtime documentary series Couples Therapy is seeking couples in the greater New York City area to participate in a second season. If you're interested, you can sign up at CouplesTherapyDocumentary.com. Just takes a minute to apply. This is really an amazing show. It's therapy, not reality TV. It actually helped the couples in the first season. Multiple couples on the first season even said it saved their marriage. The therapist, Orna, I know personally, she is dynamite. New York Magazine raves. It's a near miracle of docuseries that works because its filmmakers were committed to making it as ethically as they could. If you would like to be a couple on Couples Therapy Season 2, again, go to CouplesTherapyDocumentary.com. Just takes a minute to apply. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. Twice as much show, no ads, bonus guests. Dr. Eli Sheff from Psychology Today joins us to talk about kids growing up in poly households and poly families. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan, 40-year-old straight guy here from the Northeast. I've been divorced from my wife for a little more than a year. I have a son who's 16 and a daughter who just turned 20. And for almost a year, I've had a great girlfriend who's 11 years younger than me. Last summer, I took my girlfriend on a trip to the Mediterranean, Spain to Greece, um, places in between. And after we'd been there a couple of weeks, my daughter and her boyfriend joined us for the rest of the trip. This was pretty early in getting to know my girlfriend, so we were pretty sexually charged during the trip. Uh, among other things, we took in our share of nude beaches and resorts that some of that region is famous for. My daughter and her boyfriend also enjoyed these with us, and I should add that both of my kids uh, visited nude, nude beaches with my ex-wife and me when they were growing up. We've been planning another trip for this coming summer, accompanied again by my daughter and her boyfriend, but also by my son this time. Here's the thing. My girlfriend recently divulged that the sexual charge of the last trip was not only between me and her, but that she had a threesome with my daughter and her boyfriend while we were in Greece. Uh, I was pretty floored by this news still processing it a bit. On one hand, I raised my children to be sex positive, so I don't blame the kids for indulging the pleasure. My daughter, her boyfriend, and my girlfriend are young, pretty hot sexual beings. Uh, also, my girlfriend and I haven't actually discussed 
monogamy or open relationships, uh, anything like that. So I don't really feel that any rules were broken on that front. And some of our shared fantasies do involve other people. However, just not, uh, in, at least in my mind, uh, the two involved here. I guess I feel somewhat betrayed because I wasn't informed at the time, but I also understand the reluctance of all parties to speak freely of this. In another sense, I feel a peculiar jealousy because there was this tryst going on, but I wasn't invited to the party, so to speak. In general, I'd say my feelings about this are muddled and I'm looking for more clarity. I'm also unclear about how to deal with this on our upcoming trip. I don't want to put a damper on by having this overshadow what otherwise would be a great time, but this knowledge can't help but come into play in my own mind as we travel, and I'm not sure how that will play out. Part of me wishes that I don't know about this. I'm wondering if you might have any advice about how to deal with this indiscretion over the short term maybe during our upcoming trip, or and how to keep it in perspective for the longer term. So just to be clear, the party you feel like you weren't invited to, the tryst you feel excluded from that you missed out on, was a three-way with your daughter and your daughter's boyfriend and your girlfriend. I hope when you listened to yourself just then that how odd that sounds leapt out at you. That is a party you don't want to be invited to, the three-way with your daughter. That is a tryst that you should be excluded from. It's a tryst that your girlfriend should not have had with her boyfriend's adult child and her boyfriend's adult daughter's – her boyfriend's adult child's boyfriend – Cancel the upcoming vacation. I have said for years, one of my sort of like go-to isms is, you know, if you're with somebody for 20 years, you should be able to forgive the hand job on the business trip in a, from a masseuse, right? That that's a kind of cheating that I think a couple in a long-term committed relationship should be able to process and get past. Fucked your sister on your wedding night? Probably not something that you could get past. To that short, short list of things you might not be able to get past, I will now add, had a three-way with your daughter and your daughter's boyfriend on a European vacation. I will add that to the list of things you probably can't get past. This is a betrayal. This is on your girlfriend's part early in your relationship. Such a colossal error in judgment. Such a colossal moral blind spot that it's disqualifying. Wait a minute. You tell me now that you fucked my daughter on when you were on vacation with me, my daughter who's nine years younger than you, and you fucked her boyfriend too when you were on vacation with me? That's not okay. That's like fucking sister on my wedding night. That's not something I'm going to be able to pass. It's not something I'm going to be able to forgive. And so this is the end. What you shouldn't be doing is planning another vacation with your children with the woman who already fucked one of your kids on a previous vacation. What's the party you're hoping to be invited to in the future on this upcoming vacation? You're hoping to be invited to the four-way with your girlfriend, your son, your daughter, and your daughter's boyfriend? I certainly hope not, and I don't think so, actually. I think you just kind of got out rhetorically over your skis there a little bit. But you need to see this for what it is, a deeply, deeply fucked up situation and not just fucked up on the part of your girlfriend, but also a little fucked up of your daughter 
to sleep with her father's girlfriend, her father's brand new girlfriend, and her boyfriend on this vacation behind her father's back. It, it sounds like blind spots are hereditary and endemic in your family somehow. Call this off. End this relationship. You're recently out of a long-term relationship, recently out of your marriage. This is Chalk this one up to bad judgment, blind spots, and rebound. This relationship with this woman who fucked your daughter and your daughter's boyfriend on the vacation that you were on with her. Please don't go on vacation with her again. Please don't take her away to a nude beach with your daughter and your son again. You need to establish some boundaries with your children and establish much clearer boundaries in any future relationships you might happen to find yourself in and have a little bit more clarity yourself about what parties you want and don't want to be invited to. And sex positivity is wonderful. I consider myself a sex positive person, but there are limits. There is sex positivity, which involves a healthy respect for other people's emotions, other people's boundaries. And then there's anything goes and sex positivity doesn't mean anything goes and there are no rules and there are no reasonable expectations or reasonable assumptions. And finally, Hail Mary pass here, just kind of hoping against hope. There are malignant narcissists out there in the world. There are people who will lie to people about their loved ones in an effort to isolate them from their loved ones. It is possible that your girlfriend made this up. I'm hoping actually that your girlfriend is the bad actor here, but there were no bad actions on this vacation that she lied to you. What I'm hoping is that she lied to you about what happened in an effort to cause a disruption, to to estrange you from your daughter and perhaps your son too, to cause a big rift in the family so that she can have you all to yourself. It is a thing that some deeply shitty people have done blown into relationships, entered into relationships, inserted themselves between parents and their children in a new romantic relationship, and then lied and lied and lied to blow those relationships up so they are the only one, so that they are the most important person in their new partner's life. That is the thing that has happened, and I'm kind of hoping, somehow hoping against hope, that that is the thing that happened here. If you haven't discussed this with your daughter, if the only thing you have to go on is your girlfriend's word, and your girlfriend is the kind of person who would do this or say this, even if she didn't do it, you might want to confirm that this happened with your daughter before you take any actions, however awkward that conversation might be. Hi, Dan. I'm a 32-year-old woman, and I have a 17-year-old little sister who is still in high school. She's recently started dating a 21-year-old man. She says they met on Facebook through a friend, but my guess is she was probably using the Facebook dating app. She has my parents' full blessing on this relationship. I've tried confronting them about it, and they say he's a really nice guy, and they can't stop her. And if this would have happened when I was 17, they couldn't have stopped me either. And although that may be true, I don't think it's that bad to have higher hopes and higher standards for her. Although I've never met this guy, he totally gives me the creeps. Because I remember being 21, and I didn't want anything to do with any high schoolers. My parents say that four years difference isn't that big of a deal, but at their ages, I think it is. My sister is fully aware that I disapprove, but she is emboldened due to the support of my parents. Might I add that my dad is a county sheriff, and he's basically consenting to statutory rape. 
There's a concert coming up at the end of this month that I got tickets to for my sister and I, and she's now telling me that the dude bought a ticket to and is coming with. I'm really annoyed by this. I don't want to support her in this situation, but I don't know what to do. You haven't met this guy. Your parents have. They're comfortable with your sister dating this guy. You're not. Maybe if you met the guy, maybe if you gave him a chance, maybe if you provided for your sister what your parents are providing for your sister, which is scrutiny, vetting, uh, not outside interference, but engagement. There's a kind of accountability loop that this boy has entered. This boy, this man, this 21-year-old man has entered in that your parents are talking to him and he knows that they know that he's in this relationship with their daughter and she's able to be open with your parents about this relationship. So if he pulls anything as the all of four years older and more powerful person in the relationship, if he attempts to manipulate or abuse her, your sister can be open with her parents about what's going on in her relationship. And then if it gets creepy or manipulative or exploitative in in actual fact, not just the numbers making you uncomfortable, but things he's actually doing that make your parents uncomfortable, they're in a position to shut it down. And they haven't Romeo and Julieted your sister about it. They didn't intervene right away to shut it down because they disapproved. They gave it, the relationship, and him a chance. And if they see something that makes them uncomfortable, if they see something as the relationship unfolds in front of them, that leads them to conclude that it's an unhealthy relationship and that he's a bad dude, your sister is likelier to hear them out and shut the relationship down or leave the asshole if he proves to be an asshole than if they're just the enemies of the relationship from the start. You know, you say that your sister's 17, 17 is almost 18. Age of consent in many states is 16. Washington State, where I am, the age of consent is 16 years old. 18 in California, 17 in Texas. Depending on where your sister is, even though she's 17, even though she is in high school, this may not be a case of statutory rape. But even if it is a case of statutory rape, and I disapprove of statutory rape, even though I'm kind of sort of the victim of a st- statutory rape or a whole summer's worth of statutory rapes. When I was 15 years old, I was dating a woman in her early 20s. She was my girlfriend. I lost my virginity to her. A lot of people have argued that me being honest about this and also open about the fact that I don't feel that I was in any way exploited by this woman. If anything, I exploited her. I used her to buy myself a little bit more time in the closet, You know, even though I was a musical theater kid, to buy myself a little bit more time luxuriating under the presumption of heterosexuality and the benefit of the doubt because I wasn't ready to be out yet. And in some ways I used her and in some ways she used me, but I don't feel I was the victim in that relationship. And it would have traumatized me had my dad, who was a Chicago cop, arrested my girlfriend. You're worried about this boy exploiting your sister and perhaps traumatizing her Talk to your sister. Talk to your father, the sheriff. Ask her, your sister, what would traumatize her more? This relationship? And apparently your parents are comfortable with this guy and they've been with him and your sister. They vetted him and they're comfortable with it and they've approved of it. So this isn't something your sister is sneaking around and doing. She's not. If she were sneaking around with this guy, I would be more concerned. 
if this was a relationship that he had encouraged her to keep secret from her parents, that would be a big red flag. But that he's been open with your parents and made himself available to your parents to be questioned, to be scrutinized, to be vetted, that is a good sign. And he's also making himself available to you for vetting by wanting to go to this concert with you. And you can withhold your approval. You don't have to approve. You can be squicked out by the 1721 thing, by the age difference. But your disapproval isn't going to stop your sister from being in this relationship. So if you want to protect your sister, the more family members who are involved, the more family members who can scrutinize, question, vet this guy, the better for your sister, who is the person ostensibly that you want to protect. The bottom line here is that your parents have met this guy and they're comfortable with your sister continuing to see him. I would encourage you to meet the guy too and see how you feel about him after you've met him in person and take the opportunity, seize the opportunity, not just to meet him and not necessarily to even be polite, but to grill him. Ask him why the hell is a 21-year-old, he's dating a high schooler, dating someone who's 17 years old. Ask him about how they met. See if he can't, as he appears to have already done for your parents, answer your questions to your satisfaction. I get it. I am not comfortable with the idea of people in their 20s dating people in high school, as hypocritical as that may be, because when I was 15 years old, I was dating someone in their 20s. When I was 17 years old, I was dating a guy in his late 20s. And my dad knew about, well, didn't know about the guy, but knew about the girl when I was 15. My dad, who is a Chicago police officer, grilled me about it, as did my mother, wanted to make sure I wasn't being harmed or exploited, and then allowed the relationship to run its course. By holding really the person who I was dating accountable, that person knew that my parents knew it made it safer for me to be in that relationship that I was going to be in anyway, whether my parents approved or not. In your case, your parents approve. I think you should go to the concert. I think you should meet the dude. I think you should pepper him with questions. See if this relationship doesn't deserve an exception. See if the reality of it as opposed to just the numbers of it doesn't set you at ease and make you feel more comfortable. And then be sure to tell your sister that you want her to come to you and be open with you about her relationship. If there's any problems or issues that they're having, you know, early in life when we're in our first relationships, it really helps if our families can know about them if we have healthy functional families. If our families can know about them because, you know, we've never done this before. I remember when my sister was a teenager and her boyfriend told her that if she loved him, they wouldn't use condoms. She wouldn't insist on him using condoms. And my sister was able to tell my parents that he said that to her and ask my parents whether that was true or not. And of course, my parents hit the roof. When I was 15 years old and dating a girl and my parents knew about it, they were able to yell and scream at me about birth control and hold me and my girlfriend at the time accountable. When I was 17 years old and dating a guy and still closeted, my parents didn't know about it. And I didn't have the benefit of being able to go to them and open up to them about what was going on in my relationship and ask for their ad advice because I didn't have their support. Your sister can go to your parents for advice. She should be able to go to you for advice too, but she's going to need from you what she's already got from your parents, which is your support. And you can support her without approving 
of 21-year-olds dating 17-year-olds. But in this case, in your sister's case, you're going to have to allow what you can't shut down and make some sort of peace with it so that you can be there for your sister if she needs you ultimately to help shut this down for reasons that may have nothing to do with the age difference. Hey, Dan. Guy from the Midwest here. My ex-girlfriend used to be a cam girl, and she was always under the impression that her performances were not able to be recorded. I admit that I have done some Googling that I probably shouldn't have, uh, and I have found that there are sites that have some of her old videos from many years ago on them available to uh, some you can watch for free, some you have to purchase. Uh, she is not aware that these exist. Things did not end well with her, um, and you know it's questionable that I know that they exist, because yes, I did look for them and shouldn't have. Should I tell her that those are out there so that she can try to get them removed, or should I just let this drop? She either knows that the videos are out there and there's nothing that she can do about it. And there is nothing that you can do about it. The videos are out there. They've been reproduced a hundred million times and there's no getting them off the internet now. But she either knows they're out there and there's nothing she can do about it or she doesn't know they're out there and she isn't tormented by the thought of them being out there. She lives in blissful ignorance about their existence. Either way, it's literally none of your business. This is your ex-girlfriend. She does not want to hear from you. It didn't end well. She will question your motives in looking for the videos in the first place, feel creeped out, maybe even violated by the fact that you, her ex, that things didn't end well with, was out there trawling the internet looking for these dirty videos of her. And she will assume, and I'm not saying that this is true, but she's very likely to assume that you're just reaching out to be shitty to her. To, to blow up her day, to make her feel bad, whether she knows about the videos being out there or not, you as the messenger, you're not the right one. Even if there was something she could do to get the videos off the internet forever, which there isn't, you are not the right person to let her know that those videos are out there. So delete the links. Stop looking around the internet for your ex-girlfriend's cam performances from way the fuck back when and let her be. Let her be blissfully ignorant if she's ignorant about their existence or let her just be at peace with you out of her life. Hi, Dan. I have a question about a friend who up until now I thought was uh, only, you know, seeing me in a platonic way. I'm a straight man for what it's worth. And I thought he was too. And, you know, it's, it's, it's cool. He has feelings for me. But the way that he was talking about feelings, it, it was sort of predatory and weird. We were having a New Year's Eve party a few, a few days back, and uh, my girlfriend saw some texts that uh, this friend of mine was sending to another friend of his. For context, the other friend, I've only met him once, and he really gives off like strange vibes, just like he's just a strange dude. And even the friend in question here thinks that he's a strange dude. And so anyway, we had this party and my girlfriend saw some texts that made it seem like the friend of mine was chatting with his weird friend about making some kind of advance on me and at, and joking around that, you know, my girlfriend would want to join in 
and just, you know, a bunch of things that I was really shocked to hear from this friend of mine. You know, the types of things that I wouldn't necessarily be shocked to hear from his weird friend, but the way my friend was agreeing with it, you know, and kind of playing along with it. And if it is some kind of joke, it's just a weird joke. So I, I, you know, confronted him by a text last night and I, he did exactly kind of what I feared he might. Uh, I, I mean, he lied and I know that he lied because I knew what the text said and I knew how he responded to that initially. And then when he realized that I, you know, I knew what I was talking about and I had him basically, he kind of made it about why did I know what the texts were, texts were, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I don't want to bear down with like all these details. I just want to ask you for advice because I've never had to deal with anything like this. So how close a friend was this? And note my use of the past tense there. How close a friend was this? Well, your your usage of the past tense is unfortunately correct. Uh, so because of development that happened actually after I called. Uh, how close of a friend? About as close as you can get within the period of a couple of years of knowing him. So, you know, we would, we're co-workers and we also would share some drives to work. I'd get you carpool a little bit, mm. but once a week or so. So, you know, we spent a lot of time alone together. Uh, which I thought was kind of relevant to my to my thinking about this. But so so not like a best friend, not somebody you know, not your go to guy, not your closest friend, uh, someone you knew, knew from work, enjoyed spending time with, but not someone, not a, not a true intimate. No, I mean, it, I feel like it was probably getting to the going there, you know, mm -hmm. because we had aspirations of starting a small business together at some point. So a bit closer than that, but not, but like you say, not exactly my best friend, but a close friend. And how old is everyone roughly involved here? Uh, he's 28. I'm 27. And, and so he was swapping text messages at a party and your girlfriend was somehow in a position to look over her shoulder and read them in real time. Yeah. The, 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 the condensed version of that is basically just that, you know, when she saw something out of the corner of her eye, she was excited initially because she thought it meant something that it turned out was very much not the case. What did she think it meant? So she thought it meant that um, he was going, you know, the, the friend had basically asked, have you made a move yet? And that's the part that she caught. Uh, and she was excited because she thought that uh, that meant that he was going after somebody that we haven't really played matchmaker with as such, but thought that somebody he might would like to date. Oh my and gosh. that and, person and it, was also in attendance. And then it became clear that the person that his, the person he was texting with was asking if he'd made a move on was you. Precisely. Yes, exactly. Okay. And so, you know, your friend is gay or bi, closeted, a, a little creepy, maybe told somebody else that he was into you, but not out and was out to that person and had this like filthy conversation about you while you were in the room that your girlfriend was privy to. That's what I was initially thinking. And, you know, like I said, my message, I don't really, everybody's allowed to have a fantasy and, and everybody's allowed to have attraction. That's not the part that but you don't want to be friends with people who have ulterior motives, who are exactly. insinuating themselves into your life and you feel like you trust them and they've told you who they are. And then you find out that you, know, you begin to worry that, you know, they've been lying to you this whole time or misrepresenting themselves in the hopes of getting something from you that isn't on offer. And that can make you feel really uncomfortable. Precisely, Dan. Ay, ay, ay. And so the confrontations continued and we're in the past tense with this dude because things went 
further south since you called? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I initially confronted him via text, and I understand that that's not an ideal medium for, you know, serious discussions, but it was really just a matter of comfort at that point, uh, whether it's selfish comfort or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, I just, I kind of basically just asked him pretty straight up, like, hey, do you have feelings for me in this way? And, you know, I, I don't mean to make this a sort of, you know, uh, blaming situation or whatever. I just, I need to know this because I saw some some things that were, you know, sort of would lead me to believe that I should ask that question. Mm-hmm. And he he denied that, and that's that's cool. But uh, when I told him a little bit more about the level of explicitness that the text included, and in, you know, things like you know making acts that he I assume would know would be not consensual on my or my girlfriend's part. You know, when I asked him about those things and, you know, told him that how I knew those those things, he really tried to play those off as though they were some kind of humor situation, albeit humor that has gone too far. Mm -hmm. And that the friend he was texting has a history of, you know, those like going too far jokes. Right. Okay. So he said things about you that you found degrading or dehumanizing or objectifying he said them with the assumption that you would never know he was saying these things about you, that he was sort of secretly perving on you with someone who apparently knows him better uh, than, than you do and someone he's more open with about who he is sexually than he's been with you or been with you up to that moment until he got busted. Uh, and and you know, people do sometimes get carried away. You know, People will say things about – someone they're attracted to, to someone else that they wouldn't say to that person because they know it wouldn't be well received or they know that the attraction isn't mutual or they're not out yet to that person or whatever. But, you know, they'll say something to a third party intimate about, uh, and they'll like sometimes express themselves in a, a, a crude way. It's just that through circumstance, you became privy to this, to his internal monologue about you basically. And, and it's made you uncomfortable and, and it's, I probably derailed permanently and fatally this friendship because it was, you know, there was a lie at the heart of it because there was, he had an ulterior motive and you don't feel comfortable hanging out with him because of the lie and the ulterior motive. Maybe it's possible now that everything's out in the open. And once he stops performing, you know, having been the most wronged person in the interaction because his sacred privacy was invaded. You know, if you're texting away with somebody at a party and there's people milling around, someone might see your text. It's not exactly private. It might draw the eye. People shouldn't read each other's text messages. But, you know, when people see them, their own boyfriend being discussed in a text message, they're going to peep. It, it, it may be that you can get to a point where you're able to be friends with someone who is attracted to you, maybe express that in an, a crude way to someone else without the expectation that you would ever know about it. And they were just kind of like pervy venting and getting it out of their system because it's possible there was no sort of like five-year plan to get into your pants or to manipulate <laughs> you into a sexual situation where non-consensual things were actually happening. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But, but, but he would have a lot of work to do to make that up to you. That's on him to, to earn your trust and friendship again, not on you to just sign off on all the shit he was saying about you. But you can, I mean, certainly you must have been in a circumstance where there was someone you were attracted to. That person didn't know. You would never tell that person because nothing was ever going to happen. But you told somebody else, like, oh, my God, I would love to do X, Y, and Z to that person. Oh, my God. Uh, but nothing can come of it. And I'm just, like, pervy venting, right? Have you ever done that yourself? 
Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay, so someone did that about you. And I'm sure the person you pervy vented about and just like got it out of your system about, if they had heard it, would have felt really uncomfortable and it could have derailed that friendship or whatever kind of relationship you had with that person. Right? Oh, yeah. And so you have done ex- so. so you've done exactly what this guy did to other people. Right? That's true. Uh, yeah, I, I, I guess so. And, and that's, that's not me busting you. We all have done this. We all have done it where we've expressed ourselves in a crude way to someone we know well that we have this kind of crude rapport with where we both understand that we don't mean these things we're saying. We're just like crudely pervy venting like I keep saying um, with the understanding that it goes no farther than here and I would never say this to the person that I'm saying it about because I wouldn't want to make them uncomfortable. I wouldn't want to ruin the friendship. You know, I'm working really hard. You know, maybe I'm working a little too hard here to get this guy off the hook. It's just that I feel like this is a hook that we could all potentially wind up on because you mm. know, we all have people in our lives that we're, you know, might be attracted to, thrown together by work or circumstance or school where we know nothing will ever come of it because they're not, you know, our sexual orientation, because they're involved with somebody else, because they're our sister's boyfriend, whatever it is, wherever there's like, there's the disconnect that makes it impossible for anything to come of this. And we're still attracted to them. And we kind of need to get it out of our system, say it to somebody. And we all do this. And all of our relationships with the people that we're attracted to where nothing can ever come of it, that we vented about all those relationships would be destroyed if the person that we were venting about could overhear us. And that's what happened here. So do you think in the interest of like honesty and, and, and the building that trust back up, do you think that there is any credence to when, you know, he says that he was playing a game with the, the friend he was texting and that he did, it was not a reflection of his feelings on me. Uh, Occam's razor. No, I mean, there's a small yeah. chance maybe but he was probably telling the truth to his friend. You know, he's bi or gay, closeted 28. There are still closeted 28-year-olds out there in this world, you know, yeah. now. And maybe he's not ready to come out yet or not ready to come out to everybody yet. And he's out to a couple of people or out to some people, not out to others. And you know, that just seems much likelier. That said, you know, there are creepy straight dudes out there or not, you know, there's creepy every kind of people out there, but there are people out there who say like creepy, inappropriate sexual things that they would never want to do. I, I, I've met straight guys who like joke about having gay sex too much, who I, who I think are straight, who I know are straight. And yet they'll like mm-hmm. try to gross out their straight friends by like having these really explicit conversations about like the crazy gay sex that they're never going to have, but will pretend that they want to have or are actually having at this moment just to outdo each other on the like gonzo sex weirdness. And, you know, as a gay person, I don't like, you know, gay sex necessarily being used to, to prove gonzo sex weirdness, but some straight guys do do that. However, you know, based on your girlfriend's reading of his text, it just seems likelier that he's into you. He wishes something could happen, knows something can't happen and was telling somebody else who wasn't in the room about, the shit he wishes would happen if it could happen, knowing that it can't happen. But you can't have a relationship with him if, you, if he's in, incapable of being honest with you about that. You know, embar- being embar- you know, appropriately embarrassed about it, apologize to you about it, maybe come out to you. And, and then you have that conversation about like nothing's ever going to happen. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm sorry. I was just like, uh, you know, I thought about these things. And I'm sure you have thought about women that you can't have in, in, in filthy ways and ma- managed to be – respectful and friendly with them during interactions, even if you were venting about them to a third party or furiously jacking off about them later that night. 
So you're capable of walking that line and maybe he's capable of it too and deserves the benefit of the doubt. But to earn the benefit of that doubt and to, to win your trust again, you're gonna, he's going to have to get honest with you about what he was doing, not just point a finger at your girlfriend and say she is guilty of the larger wrong here. Yeah, I, I, I hope that, that we can get to that point. Thank you. Okay, good luck. I appreciate that. Hi, Dan. I'm a female, 29 years old, living in the South. I've been seeing this guy for a little over two months now, and we've fooled around quite a bit. He does a really good job pleasing me and making sexy times a lot of fun. However, it seems like he has a hard time keeping it up. I've never really experienced this before. I give him head, and he doesn't always get that hard. And the only way I've been able to make him come is from hand jobs. We've only had penetrative sex once, and it didn't last longer than about a minute. At what point can I bring this up to him, and how do I talk to him about it? I really like him. I like his personality, and I like hooking up with him. But I also really enjoy riding a dick. What do I do? You've been seeing him for a couple of months, and it sounds like You've really been enjoying the sex that you're able to have with him at this moment. Now, he may have ED and he may erectile dysfunction and he may not have availed himself of the medications that work and that are effective and that could help him have the dick that you'd like to ride. Also possible that he is one of those guys who with a new partner, nerves get the better of him. And the longer he is with someone, the more times he hooks up with someone, the more at ease he becomes, the less pressure he feels, particularly if that person is enjoying the sex he's able to have and not relying just on his dick and just on a rideable dick. And the erections will come in time. So if I were in your shoes, knowing what I know about men and their dicks, rideable or not, I would let it play out for a little bit longer. Give it another month or two where you have the sex that you can have with him and that you enjoy manual sex, maybe introduce some penetrative toys if you miss that penetrated feeling and just continue to mix it up and tell him how much you enjoy sex with him, defining sex really broadly to include everything, hand jobs, blow jobs, manual stimulation, him eating your pussy, using toys, not just PIV intercourse. And then if another month or two he's not achieving and sustaining an erection like they say in the ED ads, then you can gently bring it up while emphasizing that you really enjoy it and obviously penetrative PIV sex isn't a deal breaker for you, but it is something that you enjoy and you would like to be part of the mix. And at that point, you can ask him, have you considered getting a Viagra prescription or trying Cialis, one of the ED meds? They work. They're effective. And they would make it possible for us to add another sex act to our repertoire of sex acts that we enjoy and that I would like to continue enjoying. But hopefully it won't come to that. Hopefully another month or two of rolling around and enjoying things with you, he will start busting out those boners and you will get to ride that dick. Hi, Dan. I had a baby in the past couple of years and I've been breastfeeding her since. And it's going well, but we're ready to wean. And my question for you is about my husband, who has been super supportive, great husband. However, he has wanted nothing to do with my boobs since I had my daughter. And at first it was like such a good thing because I wanted to just kind of let the boobs be a source of food for my baby. 
But a couple of years later, I have some resentment towards him about not touching my boobs. And we are getting ready to wean. And I know that he has expressed interest in adding the boobs back back into the mix. And I'm like, no, you have lost all privileges. So I don't know. I guess I just wanted a little bit of advice from you about how to approach this problem. So how long would it have been not a problem for your husband to back the fuck off your boobs while you were breastfeeding. You say that at first you appreciated that he left your boobs alone, that you regarded your boobs for a time as a source of nutrition for your new infant. So six months, 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, obviously we're at 24 months and you're weaning. And in the last two years while you were breastfeeding, your husband didn't pay attention to your boobs or wasn't grabbing at your boobs. And at first you appreciated that. At first that was considerate. Maybe your boobs were tender. Maybe your boobs were sore. Maybe your boobs were leaking. Maybe your nipples were chafed from all that breastfeeding when the teeth came in. Maybe you guys talked about the fact that your boobs were kind of off the menu for now. And it just seems a little self-sabotage of you at this point. Now that you're weaning, now that the boobs can come back online in your sex life with your husband, to resent him for what you appreciated him for at the outset. You appreciated at the outset that he was giving your boobs some time and space, allowing them to do something else, serve some other purpose. And now that he's excited about your boobs coming back into your sex life, about your boobs being about the two of you again, something that you share and can enjoy and have fun with, you're angry at him. It seems to me, like I said, that that's a little self sabotage and you are faulting him for what you initially gave him credit for which was giving your boobs some time and space so tell him that maybe you made a mistake the two of you made a mistake together you gave your boobs a little too much time and a little too much space and you feel a little disconnected from them as fun bags and sex toys for the husband and you need to hear from him how he's feeling why he hung back for so long and you need some reassurance about how important to him your boobs are so you can feel better about sharing them with him again. But I would encourage you to let go of your resentment, let go of your anger. It doesn't sound, at least from where I'm sitting, entirely rational. I'm curious as to whether when you, you know, had the, had the baby with your husband and began to breastfeed, if there was a conversation about, you know, him needing to leave your boobs alone and him needing to back off, if that was an explicit conversation, or if you two just sort of fell into that or that was just general advice about a breastfeeding mom that he'd been giving not to paw at her and not to grab at her tits because right now her tits are doing something else and not about him. If it was an explicit conversation you had at the outset, like, hey, I need to back off my tits for now. And he did. And you never had a conversation at a year or a year and a half where you invited his attention again, then he's not necessarily at fault for hanging back and waiting. And Waiting until you've weaned, if he'd been told to back off while you were breastfeeding, seems like an entirely reasonable assumption on his part that that he should wait until you've weaned before he comes for your boobs again or comes on your boobs again or at your boobs again. You need to have that follow-up conversation with him, particularly if you had an explicit conversation at the start about him backing the fuck off your boobs. You need to have a follow-up conversation now where you say, you know, own your feelings. You say – I need you to pay attention to my boobs again. I'm a little hurt that you haven't been paying attention to my boobs again six months ago, a year ago. If he backed off at your request, at your insistence, 
at the outset and was waiting for your explicit invitation to get back on your tits. Well, obviously he waited too long, can't read your mind. He can apologize for not being able to read your mind and he can get back on your tits, but you need to let go of the resentment. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to have a conversation with Dr. Elizabeth Sheff, a researcher, educator, coach, author of three books, The Polyamorous Next Door, Stories from Inside the Polycule, and When Someone You Love is Polyamorous. She's also written scores of academic articles, regularly blogs for Psychology Today, and she got on the phone with me, which I appreciate. Hey, Dr. Eli, which is uh, how you prefer to go. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Dan. How about you? Good, good. Thank you so much for coming on the, the show. I, I wanted to have you on because I, I keep getting a question about kids and poly relationships. And to be honest, I feel like I'm whiffing this one over and over again. Uh, but let's zoom out to 30,000 feet for a second. You've done a lot of research on poly families. So kids with poly parents, any worse off than kids with monogamous parents? I would say at least in my sample, they tend to be better off. And admittedly, my sample is skewed towards the more optimistic side of poly family life because they're the people who volunteered for the research. Mm -hmm. So they tend to think their families are in pretty good shape. And a lot of these folks in my sample are white and incredibly highly educated. At least half of my sample has a graduate degree, which is way more than the average, you know, general population. Okay. So putting it out there that your sample is skewed, how have you found that, that, that kids in this skewed sample do better than the control group kids with monogamous parents? I would say that all the extra attention and resources not only for the children, but especially for the parents, trickles down to the children in terms of lots of different role models. They tend also to be better off financially with multiple adults pooling their resources. They can have more adult time off because they can afford either a stay-at-home parent, or they can tend to like live in better school districts and stuff. But I would say the emotional resources turn out to be the most important for the children as they grow into adulthood. I have seen now some of these kids I met when they were like in preschool, maybe, and now they're graduating from college some of them establishing marriages and families of their own. And they are reporting at this point that it's their level of emotional resilience and their wide range of relational skills that they learned in their families of origin that are really advantaging them. Right so, now. So, so the idea of being, you know, part of what makes uh, kids with poly families, uh, gives them advantages, is that, you know, it takes a village. But in this case, a village of people who are all fucking each other, which is probably not what Hillary Clinton imagined when she wrote It Takes a Village. Right. But, uh, uh, you right. Know, there are uh, more adults uh, contributing financially, more adult time and attention, uh, possible for more adults to perhaps work less and pay more attention to the kids uh, growing up uh, in, in a poly family. Um, all that's very interesting, but it's not quite the question I keep bumping up against uh, in the show. Uh -huh. Not the question that people are calling me with. Uh, the issue as it continues to arise is 
as is the case for many couples who are open and then, you know, they open the relationship and then they have, you know, they realize they're in a relationship with another person, with a third person or maybe a third and a fourth person, is that their kids don't know they're poly because they weren't poly when they had their kids. And they've allowed their kids to make the same assumption that was, you know, a valid assumption at the beginning of the relationship, the default assumption of most relationships uh, by most people out there in the culture is that relationships are monogamous unless you've been told otherwise. And so people who are not right. monogamous relationships are perceived to be monogamous and often want to be perceived to be monogamous, sometimes for their professional or even, you know, social safety. Uh, but they get to this point where, you know, their kid is 11 or their kids are, you know, 7, 9, and 12 – and dad has a girlfriend or mom has a boyfriend or a girlfriend and they're faced with coming out to their kids as poly and they don't know how to do it. And I'm often yeah. not sure how to advise them to do it. So I just want to kick that question to you. Imagine like I'm a married guy, been in a relationship for a long time. Uh, my wife has a girlfriend now. We want to tell our kids who are 12. What's the best mm -hmm. way to do that? Have you looked at that in your research? I have absolutely talked to the kids about that. And what the kids are most concerned about in that case is, does the other parent know? And if so, have they given consent? Like, is mom cheating on dad? In that case, the relationship, the kid has this weight on their heart of like, oh, shit, I know this thing about mom that dad doesn't know, and this is fucked up. Ooh, I probably can't say that on the radio. No, you can Wait, say we're that. not on the radio. It's a podcast. Okay. Fuckity fuck, buck, Okay. <laughs> Fuckity fuck. Awesome. But if the, if the parents are like, you know what? Dad knows. Dad's cool with it. It's okay. You can ask us questions about this. Depending on how old the friend, how old the children are, you can say mom has a special friend or a kissing friend. Older, like tweens, just want to hear mom is hanging out with someone <laughs> and dad knows, and that's cool. The kids really are much more concerned with how will this affect the family and how will this affect the kids and they don't really care who's having sex really at all in fact they want less information about that they don't want to know that right. for super small children they don't know the difference they don't care you know these adults just blend into their social environment but teens are often like you know what whatever do your own thing i don't care i'm involved in my own life and not that concerned about what my parents are doing. Yeah, one of the things that I, I, often, I often think about and game out with people when I have them on the phone is, you know, does your kid already know, but they don't know the full truth? You know, do they know that you have a special friend and they worry that right. they have this secret they have to keep from their other parent, from your partner, and they worry that you're cheating right. and it's put them in this terribly yeah. emotionally fraught position where they're going to be angry at you. But on the flip side of that is, people who are coming out to their kids as poly and then they want to swear their kid to secrecy because the neighbors can't know their classmates can't know their grandparents can't know in that circumstance. Is it better not to come out to your kids than to put your kids in a position where they could really blow up your life, blow up their family's life. If they accidentally call mom's girlfriend, her girlfriend in front of grandma. I think you've, it's worth taking that risk, in fact, because keeping the kids in the dark 
you're going to have to work harder and harder at that. And they're going to feel like something is weird. Something's off. Mm -hmm. And unless you can give them that room to grow into that, then it just creates this weirdness that they feel like the worst thing for families is when they feel the kids feel like there's something happening that they can't talk about. Mm -hmm. I get that really strongly from my data. As long as these parents are askable, then the kids can, can flow with quite a bit. I think very importantly, however, is to put it across without shame not that you can't talk to grandma about this because what we're doing is shameful and bad and sinful, but this is a private thing. Mm -hmm. This is about family privacy. And, you know, just how I explain it to little kids is, you know, how we don't say fuck in front of grandma because it makes her uncomfortable. She doesn't like that word. We that's, but it's okay for you to use that word at home, present it, you know, with that same kind of, we don't talk to grandma about polyamory because it would upset her. Um, but sometimes the adults, like the grandparents, know something is going on and try to get information from the kids. And that's fucked up when the kids, those grandparents should ask their adult children and not their grandchildren, but sometimes they do anyway. So preparing the child for that. In case grandma ever asks you, you can just say, you should talk to my mom and dad about that. How do you subtract shame from the equation, though? Of, you know, you, you say to your kids, you know, this is – mom is a special friend. We're kissing friends. This is not uh, a problem. It's completely consensual. Dad knows. Uh, Dad's standing here and we're both nodding. Uh, but you can never tell anybody about this. You can't tell your friends at school. You have to keep this secret for us. Because people want to understand. I just don't know how you subtract shame from that equation. Recognizing right. that often with lesbian families uh, in the 60s and the 70s into the 80s, uh, it was often the case that you know same-sex couples who were parenting could have their children taken away. And so they swore their kids to secrecy about the fact that their moms were in a relationship. Right. And they had to present right. publicly as roommates who were sharing a house and splitting expenses. So same-sex couples have had – you know. Decades ago, had to engage in this kind of, uh, I don't want to, subterfuge is too loaded a word, but, but you know, ask their kids to keep the secret, uh, uh, to protect right. the family. So I'm not disparaging poly families who may be in a position to have to do that now because there isn't legal protections for poly families and there's a lot of stigma and shame. But my question for you is how does shame not factor into it when you ask your kid to keep it? Right. I would say that you can cast it more, unfortunately, as danger rather than shame. Like what we're doing is fine. We are not ashamed and you do not have to be ashamed either. But sometimes other people get upset when you don't do things the same way they do it. And we obviously don't do lots of things the same way they do it. So these families, I have to say, are already at least somewhat unconventional leaning. Mm -hmm. So... Furthermore, like at school, it's generally not that big of a deal. School authorities frequently are happy to see multiple parents. When it becomes a big deal is if their classmates are religious. And then the cl a religious classmate tells a religious parent, and those two children cannot play together anymore. I have definitely seen that in my data. And how does that impact the kid? That kid specifically was like... Yeah, whatever. You know, we were growing apart. Mm. We were very different. And 
it wasn't going to be that big of a deal. But in a more limited social setting, like that kid had other options. That kid had friends at school who were also pagans that they had met (laughs) at this local pagan gathering. Uh And, you know, the paganism is not that unusual among poly folks. More often, no religion at all. That's that's been part of my advice for for people with poly families. It's the same as you know queer families. Is you want to make sure that in your kids' orbit are others, you know, other diverse kinds of families. You know, diverse in the sense that they're families like yours, queer families too, uh, but diverse families in other respects, so that your kid doesn't judge their own family against some normative frame that you've allowed them to just adopt because the culture feeds it to right. Them. Uh, that you have to make an effort. Great advice. And, and sometimes I think that effort includes, you know, and I've gotten in trouble for saying this to gay parents, you know, where do you live? Or or straight parents with queer kids who realize that their eight-year-old is queer and are living in bumfuck Egypt where there's no other queer right. people and a lot of homophobia or transphobia. Like maybe you should fucking move. Uh, you know, if you're right. a poly family and you want your kid to not be – self-conscious or feel threatened or you want there to be more diverse kinds of families around you, you might have to move to a better, more tolerant and more diverse place to live openly and honestly as a family in a way that doesn't leave your kid feeling self-conscious or judged or shamed. I would agree to some extent, although polyamory flies under the radar so much that even when the kids know they do not have to work that hard to forget to manage the information. <laughs> That's a really. nice way of forgetting. They like, don't even have to forget. Yeah, yeah not forget, but, but just, just like, to like blot out, uh, suspend their disbelief. Right. Right. Um, and their peers are very used to children having multiple parents because of divorce, you know, at the soccer game, You've got mom and her new husband and dad and his new boyfriend, and that's super common. Not a big deal. Yeah, I have a friend who came out to their kids as Polly uh, and was was able to point to all of the parents of their children's friends who had divorced, remarried, and just said, we skipped the divorce part. Like, we have new relationships. We just didn't do the divorce. Right. And their kid had an easier time wrapping their head around it with that framing. I could see that. I could totally see that and skipped the rancor of that and still are focused on co-parenting together. It mm-hmm. sounds like. Is there anything else nice. b- before we let you go, anything else that you want for, you know, and we have a, a skewed sample here at the Savage Lovecast too. People who are yes. likely to be familiar Excellent. with poly relationships, uh, more accepting of poly families or in poly families, right. poly families. But th- I know that I have listeners who are uncomfortable with the idea of a, of a kid growing up in a polyamorous. Right. Um, besides that, you know, the outcomes in your skewed sample, the, the outcomes are as good or sometimes better uh, for the kid, better. more adults and, yes. and looking after them than fewer adults. Is there anything else that people who are uncomfortable with this topic should bear in mind or need to know? I have two pretty important things. Um, One is that even the kids, hardly any of the kids think they'll necessarily be polyamorous themselves, which is neither here nor there in a way, but they all are fairly happy that they were in polyamorous families. If I'm asking them at 30 years old, for instance, if they wish that they had grown up in a different family or maybe a monogamous family, a family that was more blended into the culture even if they are not actively like, no way am I ever going to be polyamorous, 
they all are very pleased that they got to grow up in that family. They feel that the advantages far, far outweighed the disadvantages. So that's one thing. The second thing I would say is that the non-sexual relationships in the family end up being way more important than the sexual relationships. Well, the, you know, who's fucking who is the biggest kind of sexy headline. It turns out that if the metamors have a strong and connected, supportive relationship, that family is going to make it through all sorts of crazy shit. If the metamors can't stand each other, they're doomed. That family, the only hope for them is long distance. And, and metamor, can you define that term for folks out there who haven't heard it before? The metamors are the um, partner's partners who are not actually having sex with each other. So back to the wife gets a new girlfriend, it would be the girlfriend and the husband. If they like each other and support each other and support each other's relationships with the wife, mm. then that trio is going to be really solid. If they can't stand each other, that husband hates that girlfriend, that girlfriend wants to get that wife away from that husband, then they're fucked. The only only way to handle it is very little contact between the husband and the girlfriend, like a long distance relationship. But daily contact, no way, not going to work. Dr. Eli, thank you so much for your time and for helping me. And maybe I'll do better with this question in the future. Thanks to your help. Thank you. Dr. Eli is the author of three books, Polyamorous Next Door, Stories from Inside the Polycule, and When Someone You Love is Polyamorous. Look for her writing at Psychology Today. Thank you again, Dr. Eli. Thank you. Hi, Dan. So my sister is in a bit of a situation with the mother-in-law from hell right now. She was slightly tolerable due to geographic distance and limited family visits per year. This year, there have been a few major incidents despite the distance. The in-laws have a dog that is super anxious about people being in the house and growls, jumps, and snaps at people. He has bitten several people but hasn't made anyone bleed yet, although that's more due to luck that people have been wearing heavy coats when bitten. He's bitten my sister, her husband, my dad, and several other people. The mother-in-law locks the dogs up when they aren't home but refuses to lock up or make any attempt to stop the dog from attacking people because she claims he never draws blood and doesn't want to hurt the dog's feelings. My sister has told her that she's not going into the house anymore unless the dog is either controlled or locked up, which the mom continues to refuse to do because she says it's the dog's house too, and it's on everyone else to make more of an effort to make him feel comfortable since they are the intruders, not him. In October, my sister got into a car accident and broke her foot. She's also pregnant. So my sister's husband told the mother-in-law that she would not come over for Thanksgiving unless the dog was locked up because she was already unsteady on her feet because of the broken foot and big belly, so she couldn't afford to have a 40-pound dog jumping on her, knocking her over, or biting her since taking antibiotics while pregnant is difficult. The mom refused, made a huge deal about it, and repeated that the dog has never drawn blood and it would hurt the dog's feelings to lock him up. No one can reason with her about this. She's made comments that she's not going to get to be in her only grandchild's life because of my sister. The latest incident has to do with my sister and her husband's requirements that anyone who is around the baby before eight weeks must be vaccinated for whooping cough, as the CDC and their doctor recommends. The mother-in-law said she's not doing it because she thinks she might be allergic to the vaccine, even though the CDC says this allergy occurs in less than one in a million people. She refuses to get tested to confirm she's allergic. They've told her they aren't singling her out about this, that this is a rule they have with everybody. 
He's also been very calm with her, defending my sister, explaining everything and trying to reason with her, but she keeps making comments like how her children don't love her, but her dogs do. She doesn't understand why my sister and her husband won't make an effort with the biting dog or make an exception due to her unproven allergy and is taking these situations as personal attacks. There are several more stories, like the mother-in-law announcing the pregnancy way before they were ready and telling people about their miscarriages when they asked her multiple times to keep this information quiet until they were ready. My sister just wants to be done with her. She's unwilling to take any preventable risk with a newborn or expose a baby to a dog who bites, even if he hasn't drawn blood. Her husband agrees that the vaccination is a non-negotiable, but he's very stressed about the whole situation and wants his mom to beat the baby. What's the best way to deal with a person like this? Is it worth worth it to have someone like this in your life because they're family? Should they flatter her and apologize for the sake of letting her feel she's won? Or is this a lost cause? Don't fly to her. Fly from her. Fly in the opposite fucking direction. Your mother-in-law doesn't want her son, her grandchild, or your sister in her life. That's what the dog means. That's what the refusal to get vaccinated or get tested to see if she could get vaccinated means. She is manipulating everyone else into a corner where they have to reject her and then she gets to play the wounded party. She's being completely irrational, completely unreasonable. If I were your brother-in-law, I would be suggesting to my mother that she needs a mental health checkup because she is doing destructive things, self-destructive things. She's laying waste to her relationships and then complaining about the wasteland that is her relationships. Yeah, no. Your sister was right to refuse to go to Thanksgiving. Your sister and your brother-in-law have an absolute right not to let his mother get within 100 miles of their infant. Yeah, no. Your sister's mother-in-law is the author of her misfortunes, and she likes this story. She likes the story that she's writing where she gets to play the victim because she'd rather see her daughter-in-law chewed up on the floor, knocked over when pregnant with a broken ankle, covered in dog bites, than hurt her dog's feelings. It feels a little weird to be saying all these things, not to the woman whose mother-in-law is the problem and not to the son whose mother is the problem, but to the sister of the woman whose husband's mother is the problem. If you can get them to listen to this, they have my permission not to see mom, not to see his mom in person ever again. She has chosen anti-vaxxer idiocy and she has chosen a violent out of control dog over her relationships with her own children. And she has to live with that choice. And your sister and your brother-in-law shouldn't feel the least bit guilty about not seeing this woman in person or her awful dog in person ever again. Hi, Dan, 28-year-old straight female calling from Australia. I have a friend who wants to start a fin-dom relationship with me where I would be the dom. Now, I am interested in exploring this with him. In particular, I'm interested in exploring being dominant, I typically err on the side of more submissive. I am intrigued. I find this interesting and I do want to give it a go. However, he keeps talking about how he wants me to financially ruin him, which obviously is not okay. I'm not going to financially ruin anyone. Um, but I don't know how to kind of say that without spoiling the illusion. I, I love the idea of playing a game where we're talking about me financially ruining, ruining him. And even involving, a, you know, a little bit of money is fine, but I'm certainly not going to take all of his money, as he seems keen for me to do. And then the other issue is he keeps wanting me to expose him to some of our friends that we used to have at university. 
And first of all, I, I don't speak to any of these people anymore, so it would be really weird if I suddenly messaged them. And secondly, I'm not going to involve anyone in our little sex game without their consent. But again, how do I say that to him? How do I maintain the illusion of potentially humiliating him without actually involving people, you know, without them knowing about it, which I don't think is okay. Zooming out for a second, I just want to say that it's really fascinating, and I'm going to challenge my listeners out there in academia. Someone needs to do a PhD, a dissertation on the emergence of FinDom as a kink, really, I think, in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. Of course, there were people who had submissives who gave them money, who paid them tribute. But this whole FinDom fetish with that name, Cash Pigs and FinDom, it didn't take off really until the last 10 years and change. And it suddenly exploded everywhere. And I think mass cultural traumas have a way of being processed through our erotic imaginations. We've talked about this in the past, I believe, when you look at the history of uh, BDSM or dom-sub imagery before the Second World War. It was really a pastoral. It was about class, the manor house, the stable boy, the French maid. And after the Second World War, it was really about fascism and dehumanization and black leather jackboots. And really the idea of BDSM shifted. And in the shadow of you know the 2008 financial crisis – the Great Recession, this FinDom kink emerged where people have money, are going to be ruined, destroyed, uh, dominated by people who don't have money, who want to take their money. And it's just fascinating. And I'm a little inarticulate about it and just a little bit sort of obsessed with it. And so I'm laying down the gauntlet. I'm throwing out a challenge. Somebody out there in academia needs to do a study, needs to do a dissertation, needs to do some PhD level work on the emergence of FinDom as a kink in the wake of the financial crisis. All right. So that's my little hobby horse. So your particular situation. Yeah, it's a paradox. He probably fantasizes about being ruined financially and better he should share that fantasy with someone who morally wouldn't ruin him financially, who wouldn't do that to him, but is willing to toy with that idea. And, I'm, and that's probably what he wants. There's a lot of people out there with – DS or power exchange fantasies who like to think about their, you know, ultimate fantasy being locked away in a dungeon forever and disappeared. And there are some people out there online who say that that's what they want and that's what they're looking for and that's what they're masturbating about. But they wouldn't want that in reality. And if they got that for themselves, if they were the proverbial dog who caught that proverbial car, they would most likely regret it quickly. Same thing here. He would most likely regret it quickly. It's fun and sexy for him to say it out loud, to fantasize about it, to blow that load. But after he ejaculates, I'm sure he's happy to see that he still has his 401k or whatever the equivalent is in Australia. So what you want to do is basically what you suggest, that this is something you want to toy with, that you want to fantasize about. But you have a way of making that fantasy more intense and, and more real for him, which is by having the power – to ruin him financially without ever exercising it. I have a friend in another city who has a castration fetish. Not common, not unheard of either. He has a partner. His partner doesn't, wouldn't ever castrate him, but they do role play where his partner's in a position where he's helpless and his partner's in a position to do it. He has the power to do it. He could do it. 
but he doesn't. But they toy with, during sex, dirty talk about the fact that at this particular moment, his partner could, even if they both know that he wouldn't. Still, the reality that he could makes it exciting for my friend who has the castration fetish. So here's this guy who has this fin sub fetish who's aroused by the idea of someone having the power to ruin him financially. Well, you can have that power. This is my friend who likes to think about being castrated, gets strapped down, and his partner draws a knife across his balls gently without actually cutting them off. You can have access to all of his money, all of his savings, and you can make that clear to him by occasionally making a small withdrawal or moving something around and emphasizing to him that you could do this even if you aren't going to do it. But you can tell him that he has to live every day with the awareness that you could. And that should be enough. That should be arousing enough for him. And if it isn't, well, then this isn't a role that you want to play in his life. You're not comfortable being the fin dom who actually does destroy him financially. Toying with the idea, you're fine. Making it realer for him by having the power to, even if you don't, also fine. That should be good enough. Hopefully he's sane enough that that's good enough. As for involving your old college friends, obviously you can't involve people in your kink without their consent. You're certainly not going to drag people back in your life just to tell them this. But maybe you have some friends in your life that you share all the details of your sexual adventures with and they would be happy to be involved. Maybe they would be happy to go out to dinner with you on his dime as you take the few hundred dollars out of his checking account that you can because you have that power to treat your friends to dinner and tell them why, and they can text him a little thank you for the dinner. And that should suffice. And if it doesn't, well, then again, in this way too, you're not the right fin dom for him because you don't want to involve old mutual acquaintances that you're no longer in touch with, and you don't want to ruin him financially. If he needs both those things, he needs to keep looking for some other fin dom. And finally, congrats on being such a kink-positive, ethical, thoughtful person that you were receptive to this, that you wrestled with the implications of it, that you're willing to think about how you might be able to explore this with this person that you enjoy and that you like, recognizing the validity of his fantasies, but also the validity of your boundaries and your comfort. Well done. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read your Savage Lovecast tweets. Phoebe Maltz, Bovey tweets, have a lot of thoughts about the first Savage Lovecast call of the week from the woman who decided to give a guy a try despite not being attracted to him or enjoying sex with him. Thoughts including, if dude hears the call, which includes your graphic description of where he fell short, then you definitely won't get to be friends with him again, as is your expressed wish. But also just, why do this? Why be with someone you don't like in that way? I couldn't decide if I was more annoyed at society for asking this of women or at the caller for subjecting the dude to a pity fling and then complaining about this as if it happened to her. Sad liberal tweets, Dan, at the top of your show, you didn't just call bombing your high school with military-grade explosives the coolest thing you've ever done, did you? It wasn't cool. It wouldn't be cool today. I also said it was the stupidest thing I'd ever done and one of the most dangerous things I'd ever done. It was the walking away from the explosion like I was in an action movie. That felt cool. The actual military-grade bombing of my awful high school, you're right. You're right, sad liberal. Not cool. And finally, Pandachka tweets at Fake Dan Savage. I was just listening to episode 412, a deep dive at work when my headphones disconnected and your voice blared from my phone, sticking your dick between the mattress and box springs and humping away. Fuck my life. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. 
Sorry about that. You're not the only person I've heard from who's had a problem with headphones dislodging and my voice saying something loud and inappropriate on a subway, in a car, in an Uber, at work, at home, at Thanksgiving. Keep those headphones plugged in tight when you're listening to the Savage Lovecast. All right, if you want me to read your tweet about the Lovecast possibly on an upcoming episode, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls. Hi, Dan. Calling in response to episode 691. Usually I agree with your advice, but I had to pause the show to call in because your response to the girl in business with her ex-friend with benefits made me so angry. That man does not deserve the benefit of the doubt. When he kept asking her to sleep with him again after she told him she'd rather forget about their one night stand, he wasn't respecting that no means no. As you often say, women are socialized to defer to men and saying no when you're asked repeatedly and desperately is difficult. She said she gave in. At any point during the call, did she seem interested in the sex she was having with this guy? His behavior was manipulative and coercive in a classic nice guy way. Saying he can't be friends is another manipulation tactic. He knows they have to be together for the business, so he's punishing her by holding his friendship hostage and making their interactions as awkward as possible. I take this personally because some version of this story has happened to me and many of my other buy and street female friends. Caller, I'm sorry this happened to you. I'm sorry that your friends shitty true colors came out once sex was on the table if i were you i'd stop being in business with this man best of luck this is a comment for the woman on episode 691 whose husband had kind of gross slimy spit while and she was pregnant i have an alternative theory which might be that her heightened senses as a pregnant person are causing her to feel like his spit is gross it might be that it's gross or it might be that she's simply having super senses at the moment because I certainly had them when I was pregnant. Hi, Dan. I'm responding to the caller in episode 691 uh, who talked about how he has lost his sex drive and also how he has blamed uh, the the news for kind of keeping him down. Um, I've had experiences like that uh, myself. It does sound like he is really depressed at this moment. Uh, and one thing that, that I have found is when I feel like the news is keeping me down, uh, it means I need to get off social media, you know, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or whatnot. Those platforms are, their algorithms are not designed to make you happy. They're designed to keep you on the platform. And it's often quite unhealthy. So my number one point of suggestion would be uh, get out of the digital world, get into the real world, and also probably go see a therapist. All right, we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, you can give us a buzz. Or even better, you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone and then email us your question at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. My Dirty Little Film Festival Hump is on tour. It is in Albuquerque, New Mexico this weekend. Go to humpfilmfest.com to get tickets and to find out where else Hump is headed this year. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Dr. Eli Chef on Twitter at Dr. Eli Chef. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. I'll be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for doing